Well, good morning, church. Here's a few questions to start our teaching time today. They may seem a little odd, but here they are. Do the heavenly bodies, the planets, the stars, and other natural phenomena have any influence over our lives? Millions of people every day consult the horoscopes and would swear that the answer is yes. Here's another question. Is there any relationship between diet and spiritual living? I've had many friends who are dietitians and nutritionists who are at the same time solid disciples of Jesus who would say, absolutely, yes. Here's another question. Does God speak to us immediately in our minds or only through his word, the Bible? Hmm, that may seem like a hard one. And here's one more. Do the Eastern religions have something to offer those who are Christians? If it's true that all truth is God's truth, and if there's elements of truth in other religions, then are we wise to pay attention and take heed? You know, these, these questions sound very contemporary or modern day questions, don't they? Well, they're the very issues that Paul dealt with in his letter to the Colossian church in the first century. And for this reason, for this reason we need this important letter today, just as they did when Paul first wrote it all those years ago. You know, I've been a professing Christian now for almost 27 years, and one of the greatest constants I've noticed most is change. Change. We're all familiar with it. Things are always changing. Nothing ever stays the same. But some of the changes have been large changes, and these changes have had and will continue to have long-reaching effect. These changes have come on so many different fronts. We're facing greater and faster technological change, global change, social change, but we've also seen changes within Christianity. Some have been for the better, some have been for the worse. And there's one change that catches my attention the most, and it's this, the move from the core and the essential idea of Christianity to that of a Christian religion. Let me explain. You see, the Christian faith and the Christian religion are really not the same. The Christian faith holds to the essential idea of Jesus Christ and Christ alone, or Christ plus nothing, as the name of this series in Colossians claims. The Christian faith is focused on an abiding, abundant life relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Christian religion is different. See, religion is man-made and based on rules and moralism. So it's more about what you know and do instead of who you know and what he's done. In the Christian faith, Jesus rules. In the Christian religion, rules rule. We've seen this in many religious movements and organizations over the years. People are making decisions about the direction of their churches according to the dictates of society. So many churches are caving to the weight of popular opinion, and it's stripping these churches and Christians of any power they might have to change the world for Christ. And for many of us, it seems like the push in that direction is so strong that there's no way to push back. For those of us who want to hold on to Jesus... Uh, what we do when it, when it seems the whole world is, is pulling in the opposite direction is a hard question. What do we do? Well, if it helps, we're not the first Christians to be in this predicament. I know I just said we've seen this recently in various religious movements and organizations, but the fact is that Christians have felt this pushback from the world for almost 2,000 years. Christians have battled with anti-Jesus teaching since there were Christians, and Paul wrote a number of his letters to address 
anti-Jesus teachings. And in this case, in Colossians, the, promise, the problem was that there were a number of folks teaching a Jesus plus something else gospel. Jesus plus something else. That grace through faith in Jesus wasn't enough for salvation and belonging. And we'll get to more of that. But first, let's stop for a moment and look at the context of the letter of Colossians. So where was Colossae? And what kind of city was it? Well, if you look at modern day Turkey and you look on the West Coast, that's where the city of Ephesus was. And so about 100 miles inland to the east was the city of Colossae. It was very close to two other towns called Heropolis and Laodicea. Now, Heropolis was a place known for wealth and pleasure and relaxation. It was a vacation town. Laodicea was known for its commercial trade and its politics. Colossae, however, was just simply a small town, not real significant by this time. So what kind of people lived in Colossae? Well, Colossae was primarily a pagan city with a strong intermingling of Jews. It was a sizable Jewish population that lived there by this time. And so this actually helps us understand the nature of some of the problems that arose within the Colossian church, problems of both pagan influence and Jewish influence. So what was the church like in Colossae? What was the church like? Well, we're not sure when the church began, but we know that Paul himself, he didn't start it. He says in chapter two, verse one, that he had never met the Colossian Christians in person. But in chapter one, verse four, that he had heard of their faith. So most likely the church there was started by Epaphras, who's mentioned several times in the letter. And from chapter four, we know that Epaphras was a native of Colossae. He's described as a servant of Christ, fervent in praying for others and had a great zeal for his fellow believers. And we also know from the short letter to Philemon that Epaphras was a fellow prisoner with Paul at this time in Rome. So what was the reputation of the church? Let's look at some of chapter one to get to know the church in Colossae a little better. After introducing himself and greeting everyone in the first two verses, Paul expresses thanksgiving for the church at Colossae. And first he, he speaks of their reputation. For one, Paul says in Colossians, Chapter one, verse four, he says, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, what a great reputation to have. You know, some churches are known for being dead. Some churches for being lukewarm, for being a country club or an exclusive clique. But here's a church so strong in its faith in Jesus that word has made its way all the way from Colossae to Rome to Paul. They had this reputation because they really trusted in Jesus and it showed up in our lives. In Colossians 2, 5, Paul says, I delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. And some translations say that their, their, fame, their, their faith was steadfast. They weren't faithful one day and then unfaithful the next. Through thick and thin, they maintained their faith in Jesus. I wonder what kind of reputation we have. You know, every church has one, whether it's a good reputation, mediocre, or even a bad reputation. Wouldn't it be amazing if others could say of us, we have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ? Second, Paul says in the same verse, in, in verse four, he says, we have heard of the love you have for all God's people. Their good reputation included love as well as faith. Toward Jesus, they showed faith. Toward each other, they showed love. But not only love for each other, but for all the saints, including those in other places. Wouldn't you love to have that reputation as a church too? 
Well, we can if, we, if we're diligent in our love for one another, making the effort to become better acquainted, to serve one another, to be regular in our worship gatherings, whether it's in person or interacting online on Sunday mornings or at our online prayer gatherings or joining a group of some kind, certainly for Bible study, but also for friendship and for community. And we can ask the Lord to help us increase in this. But not only were they known for their faith in Jesus and their love for each other, but also among them, the gospel was bearing fruit and growing. Take a look at verses five and six. Paul says, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. And then he says, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing. It's having good effects on people and families and communities, and it's spreading. And it comes from the eternal hope that we have in Jesus, and it produces in us faith and love. Now, how could faith in Jesus and love in action produce anything other than good effects on our lives and in our communities? Well, it can't and it won't unless other things get in the way and become higher priorities. But at the end of verse six, Paul says to them, you have been bearing fruit since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. So eternal hope and therefore faith and love and bearing good fruit all come from truly understanding the grace of God, truly understanding the grace of God and what it means for our lives and salvation, that we were guilty in our sin and separated from God. But the good news, we're now forgiven and reconciled by Jesus' death and resurrection. When we actually come to terms with how bad off we were apart from Jesus and then truly understand and accept his love and our belonging in him, that's what gives us the eternal hope, the hope that is stored up for you in heaven as Paul says. So these are the people that Paul is writing to and their reputation as faithful, loving, fruit-bearing gospel people was strong. May it be for us too, amen? So what was the big deal in Colossae? Why did Paul write this letter to be read and circulated there and in the other towns? Well, as I mentioned a minute ago, there was a number of folks teaching a Jesus plus something else gospel, that grace through faith in Jesus wasn't enough for salvation and belonging. Epaphras had brought news to Paul concerning the church at Colossae. In verses 7 and 8, he says, the gospel, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful member of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. So just as we saw, for the most part, you know, Epaphras, he made this report to Paul and it was very favorable about the church. We just looked at that. But from much of the rest of the letter, we know that Epaphras told him about this twofold issue that the church there was facing. One was the danger of their relapsing into paganism with its immorality. And you can, you can read about that at the beginning of chapter three in Colossians. And we'll get to that later in the series. The other danger though, was that of being persuaded by what we can call the Colossian heresy or heresies, which again denied that Jesus is enough or, or sufficient for both salvation and for overcoming sin, or as he says in Colossians 2.23, conquering a person's evil desires. Now, this Colossian heresy 
or heresies involved a few things. I'm going to run through them really quickly, but we're going to have a whole message on them later in the series. For one, it included false philosophy. We see in chapter two, verse eight, Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So this philosophy, this human tradition, and these elemental spiritual forces that Paul is talking about here is basically a collection of ideas that result in a denial of the all-sufficiency and supremacy or superiority of Jesus Christ. And then we also had Jewish ceremonialism. And we can see that in chapter 2, verse 16, where Paul says, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So there were people attaching special significance to the rites of circumcision, food regulations and kosher laws, observance of special days, and and they were claiming that doing these special things was necessary for salvation. Jesus plus something else. Another element of the Colossian danger or heresy was the worship of angels, worship of angels, angel worship. Colossians 2.18, Paul says, don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you or make you question your, your salvation. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen and they're puffed up with idle notions by their spiritual mind. So let's explain this a second. One influence in Colossae was a form of what we would call Gnosticism. And one of the ideas there is is that God was so far above and removed from humanity that he can only be worshipped through his created spirit beings acting as his intercessors. Much like the idea of a a priest standing between us and God, but they, they named the angels. Like we can't worship higher than the angels, so we'll worship the angels because God's too far removed. So these people probably insisted that their worship of angels, rather than appealing directly to the supreme God, was an expression of humility on their part. But the problem is, this detracts from the uniqueness of Christ and diverts our worship and veneration from God to God-made things. Another aspect of the Colossian problem or heresy was asceticism, which is extreme self-denial. And we see this in chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And so asceticism or extreme self-denial in this case was imposing man-made rules as a means of gaining favor with God. So the Colossian heresy was either one system of thought that combined all these elements, or it was multiple groups teaching aspects of these beliefs. We don't really know if it was one group or, or many. But again, as I've mentioned a couple times, Paul's purpose in writing this letter was to speak and teach against these ideas. Ideas that necessarily include, conclude that grace through faith in Jesus isn't enough for salvation and belonging, that true salvation is Jesus plus something else. But Paul's message is that the gospel is Christ plus nothing. Christ plus nothing. He makes this argument in the first two chapters. And in the second two chapters, he shows how that's true in our lives every day. 
And so the value of this letter to the Colossians is the same for us today as it was for them almost 2,000 years ago. For one, it increases our understanding and our appreciation of Jesus, that he is, as he says of himself in John 14, 6, he's the way, the truth, and the life. It also helps us understand and reconnect with our Savior as the one who is supreme and all-sufficient. He's enough, not only for salvation, but even for the living of our lives. We can live victorious lives, victorious over sin, victorious in his purposes for us. And as we depend on him, because he's enough, we can be assured not to be carried away by the ideas and inadequate philosophies offered to us every day. So the church in Colossae has this great reputation of being faithful and loving one another and being fruitful in the gospel, but they're facing something that has the potential to draw them away from the true gospel of Jesus. So in verse nine, Paul tells the church what he wants. What does Paul want? Well, he's gonna pray for them. And he's, he, he tells them how he's been praying for them, how they, he and his ministry partners have been praying for them. And as we look at this, keep in mind, this is what God wants of all of us. So first in verse nine, Paul says this, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives. So let's break this down. Paul uses the word filled, not just a small measure, not just satiated, but the full measure. God doesn't want us to just get by with as little as necessary, but to be filled, filled with what? The knowledge of his will. This is what God desires us to be filled with. You know, the Greek word for knowledge in this passage is epinosis, epinosis. And it really conveys more than academic or intellectual knowledge, but more so the knowledge which is the result of practical and personal experience. So our knowledge of God's will is something we come into through practice and application in our lives, not just our head knowledge. One could say that as we walk by the Holy Spirit, we come into greater knowledge of his will. And then he says, through all the wisdom and understanding the Spirit gives. How do we get wisdom? Through the spiritual discipline of prayer. Like James 1 says, verse 5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Where do we go for understanding? Through the spiritual discipline of, of Bible reading. Pick any number of scriptures on this one. I'm going to pick 1 Timothy 3.16, where, Tim, where Paul says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you want to be filled with the knowledge of God's will? I hope you do. The blessings that come with the knowledge of God's will, the assurance and security and hope and promise and even the peace is incomparable with anything else. I mean, think about where we are right now in our culture, in our nation. 2020 just keeps getting better and better, right? I mean, what's next? But really though, when there's so much turmoil and uncertainty and conflict and fear, we get to be filled with the knowledge of God's will that the Holy Spirit gives us through our communion with him in prayer and understanding in the scriptures. We know his will is peace and not violence. We know his will is justice and not oppression. We know his will is humility, not selfish pride. We know his will is human dignity, not discrimination. 
We know his will is to see one people, the church, comprised of people from every tribe, every language, every nation, and every ethnicity. And we also know that God's will is that we do not live in fear, but we have the spirit of confidence as we boldly approach his throne and look to his leading as king over his gospel people. I hope you're saying amen at home right now. Being filled with the knowledge of God's will is important because all through history, there's a pattern of God's people being destroyed by a lack of it. But also, being filled with the knowledge of God's will is essential in our renewal in becoming like Christ. In chapter three of Colossians, Paul says, you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So Paul wants his brothers and sisters to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. But secondly, which is really the result of being filled, look at verse 10. He says, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, in every way. This is a result, the objective of being filled with the knowledge of God's will through wisdom and understanding, that we conduct ourselves in a matter worthy of the Lord. And Paul sends this message a lot. He says the same thing in Ephesians 4.1. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You know, the Lord we serve and the calling we have received is certainly a worthy one. And our conduct should be such to honor Christ, not to shame him. But it's the Holy Spirit that enables us and empowers us and emboldens us to overcome sin, to overcome our brokenness, to live each day pleasing him. But you can't fully please the Lord unless you are pleased to be full of the Lord. So let's seek his fullness in our habits and our spiritual disciplines. What is living a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing him in every way look like? Well, Paul helps us understand this too. For one, he says, being fruitful in every good work. Not just one good work, every good work. You know, there's a sense of fullness of life in our fruitfulness. Every area, every aspect of our lives is informed and shaped by a knowledge of God's will. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We've been created for this. Paul also says that we please him by increasing in the knowledge of God. Well, didn't Paul already say that? Didn't he already talk about knowledge? Well, yeah, but here there's a nuance here. He's talking about growing in the knowledge of God himself, not just his will. We can grow in our knowledge of God himself, his character, his, his personality, who he is by what he's revealed through his amazing creation, through his inspired revelation, the scriptures, but especially through the person of Jesus. Paul says in the next chapter in Colossians 2, for Christ, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity of God lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Then Paul says, we live a life worthy of the Lord and please him as we are being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. You know, he also says in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. It's God's desire to see that we are strong in our living for him. There is all power and glorious might available to the Christian of which Paul often wrote. 
And again, the purpose and effect of that might and power, Paul says, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father. You know, this is the fruit of the Spirit that he talks about in Galatians 5, patience and joy. That as we endure life with its hardships, with its disappointments, with its confusion, we can choose joy in the midst of our perseverance and remain faithful to the Father because we are filled with the knowledge of his will and are confident of his faithfulness. And I really love these next two verses. Not only do they tell us the great reasons we have to be thankful to God, but they remind us of who we are in Jesus. I love scriptures that remind us of who we are because we forget and we need to be reminded. We need to remind each other. And so as we close today, let these verses sink into your mind and your heart. And my hope is that they bring you to a place of praise and worship, expressing thanks to God for who he is, but also for who he made us to be in Jesus. Paul says in verses 12 through 14, The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you trust in Jesus, you're qualified. On your own, unworthy, but in Jesus, made worthy. If you trust in Jesus, you're accepted, no longer orphaned from God, but part of his holy people, his family, his kingdom. If you trust in Jesus, you're rescued, freed from the darkness and the bondage of anything, anything else that tries to define you. If you trust in Jesus, you're redeemed. You were bought with a price and you are not refundable. And if you trust in Jesus, you're forgiven. And now nothing stands between you and God. I hope and pray that every one of us today knows and trusts in Jesus in this way. Let's pray. And God, for those who don't, those who don't know you, who are asking questions, who, who haven't fully discovered the beauty of our Savior Jesus, I, I pray for them today. I pray that they feel this great invitation from your Holy Spirit to step into a life of faith, to discover the beauty of belonging to your kingdom, to your gospel people. I pray, Lord, that we can be the kind of church that allows people to ask questions and to explore and to make friendships that will lead to a deepening of, of our faith. Lord, we thank you that um, we have this model of a church so many years ago that were known for their faith, that were known for their love for one another, and that were known for the fruit the gospel was bearing among them. God, we pray today that you would make College Park, and indeed every church, a place where the gospel is bearing fruit to the glory of our God and to the effectiveness of the mission and the great commission that we've been called to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.